Good morning again. Welcome here inside the building, here outside on the lawn, and those who are at home. Blessings to you. Uh, this is, of course, week two of this Eastertide series, a Lucan conclusion. Uh, and Michael had mentioned that Easter in the great tradition is, is more than a day, right? It's more than one Sunday of resurrection songs and pastel ties and big hats and Easter eggs filled with dollar bills if you're lucky or cheap candy if you're still lucky. It's more than that. It's this whole 50-day feast. It's a 50-day season of encountering the risen Christ. 50 days of steeping in the reality of the resurrection, letting that wild truth of new life capture us once more. And we're in this, the second week of this three-week series where we're going through the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which is chapter 24. And we observe in this chapter the way that the risen Jesus first shows up to his disciples, to his followers. And it brings about the conclusion of Luke's gospel. And while I'll be here through May, in some ways this chapter brings about the conclusion of my ministry to you and with you in Iowa City as well. However, if you know much about Luke, the gospel writer Luke, you know that this gospel doesn't really end. It sort of transitions into the book of Acts because Dr. Luke was also the author of that. So you know that the ending of this gospel is really just the beginning of the story of the church empowered by the Spirit. My ending here as well is just the beginning of what's next for One Ancient Hope. And that continuity of the gospel bearing fruit in your lives, it gives me great joy and consolation, knowing that I get to be part of what God is doing, and it is not much of an ending at all. Now last week we read verses 1 through 12, and I tried to draw out this cyclical pattern of the Christian spiritual life that we find in there, which was orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation. And if you're following Jesus, you can expect this pattern, this repeated pattern in your life. Because the possibility of resurrection is first disorienting before it's reorienting. Excuse me, I'm going to cough if you want to mute it. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, In our reading today, we come to another pattern as well. Another pattern of the spiritual life. But first, a question. And here's what it is. Why do you come to church? Why are you here? Or why are you watching at home? And this is a question that we should ask ourselves if we're going to church often. Why do we do this thing? Why come here? You could be sleeping in. You could be prepping for a sports game. 
You could be going on a hike if it's nice outside. You could be leisurely reading a book or the paper. I mean, those are just a few things. Also, it's, I only have one kid. I imagine if you have more, it's a hassle to round them up and get them here. They might not want to come here at all, but you're still bringing them here. Why do this? And then for some of you, it's, it's a significant drive to get here. Why come to church? There's a confession. I went to Bible college. Okay, that might be a confession in itself, depending on what you think of that. But there's this running joke that probably occurs at almost all Bible colleges, right? It's Monday in class or in lunch, and one student comes up and says, Hey, uh, where did you go to church this past Sunday? And you go, uh, <coughs> uh, Bedside Baptist. <coughs> right? And they say, Bedside Baptist? I, I haven't heard of that. Have you visited anywhere else this semester? And you might say, yeah, uh, you know, Pajama Presbyterian or Morning Bells Methodist or Early Rise Episcopal or Still in the Sheets Seventh-day Adventist and on and on and on. Seriously, though, other than a few times that I had to go for class or with some friends, I did not go to church my first year of Bible college. I didn't have a compelling reason why. And if anyone should have been going to church, it should be someone who's basically training to be a professional Christian, right? But I didn't go. I didn't have a compelling reason why. Because here's why. If church was primarily about information, if it was about listening to a Bible teaching through a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, uh, why would I go? That's what I was doing in my classes throughout the week. If church is a lecture hall, I didn't need it. Why go? If church was primarily about expression, about singing worship songs or expressing myself in prayer, getting motivated for the week, I had plenty of that. I could play and sing songs in, uh, in my dorm room. I also had to go to chapel three times a week. I was doing plenty of singing, of expressing myself in worship. If church is a pep rally, I didn't need it. Why go to church? Maybe, what if church was primarily about fellowship, about being with other Christians in Christian community? Well, I had plenty of that on my dorm room floor or with other Christian friends. I mean, the whole campus was Christian. Everyone I was interacting with was Christian. So why go to church? Why do you go to church? Why are you here this morning? Or why are you at home streaming this when there's certainly other things you could be watching? Information, expression, and fellowship are all good. They're all important parts of church and the Christian life. They're all valid needs and desires, right? Yet, information isn't enough. There will come a day when you feel like you know enough. 
where even the best preacher isn't compelling enough. The content is boring. It's inapplicable to you. I won't learn anything new this morning. I'm staying home. Expression isn't enough. There will be days or seasons when your soul doesn't connect with the music or the prayers. When the circumstances in your life make you want to do anything but praise God. I'm just not in the mood to sing this morning. I'm staying home. And fellowship isn't enough. There will be days or seasons when you don't even want to see the people of your church. Perhaps someone hurt you, or maybe your closest friends at the church moved away, right? Or maybe there's just too many awkward people. This is church after all. I don't want to see anyone this morning. I'm staying home. Right? You could see yourself saying any of those things. So why come to church? Why go through the hassle of gathered worship? Let me ask another question that our scripture is concerned with this morning. How do we recognize the risen Christ amongst us? What our scripture says today is that seeing God at this table teaches us to see God at every table. When we join together in gathered worship, we encounter God in a unique way when we're together. We notice and participate in four truths about God in four liturgical movements that holistically change and reorient us as a people that bear the image of Jesus. We become the body of Christ. Gathered worship is the primary place that we become the church, the bride of Christ. And so on the road to Emmaus this morning, we see that God listens God speaks, God feeds, and God sends. These are four truths we learn about God. When we regularly and routinely participate in that pattern of worship with other Christians, it transforms us holistically. I mean, intellectually, emotionally, imaginatively, ethically, socially, consciously, creatively, it transforms us. By routinely gathering together on Sundays, which is, of course, the day of resurrection, we become a people of resurrection. God listens, God speaks, God feeds, and God sends. God listens. Verse 13 in our text. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Note this, when we're content for our dialogue to remain entirely horizontal, horizontal, <laughs> horizontal just between us, right? Jesus chooses to draw near. 
16, though, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't notice him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you talk? And they stood still looking sad. They didn't recognize who this was talking to them. And when asked to remember what happened that weekend, what are you talking about? They stop in their tracks. And they just look sad. Sometimes there's a hiddenness to God, or at least to our interactions with God. God, we do not recognize. Sometimes he's awfully hard to recognize. Yet, according to this text, he stands with us, even unrecognizably sometimes. He is with us in our sadness. And he listens as we retell the events as they appear to us. And in our gathered worship, we need to be able to express our sadness and even our inability to see Jesus at times. And sometimes this will come in a confession of sin or in a psalm reading or in a song that expresses these sort of things or even in a moment of silence. But it needs to be there. Continuing on, 18, then one of them, We only get the name of one of them, by the way, named Cleopas, answered Jesus, answered him. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, in case you miss it, Cleopas is sarcastic and cutting here to Jesus. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? Are you that unaware and out of the loop? person who's walking with us, do you care at all? And sometimes the psalmists in our book of Psalms would cry out, God, are you asleep? Are you not aware of what's happening to your people, Israel? Now look, we also need a place in our gathered worship to express perhaps even sarcasm or anger, or confusion about God. Not only can God handle it, he actually desires our honesty in prayer. God listens. 19, and he said to them, what things? God's trying to draw, Jesus is trying to draw out more, even more from the disciples. What things? What things are you talking about? So they say to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. One of the saddest lines in Scripture comes next. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Hope's gone now. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? It'd be better to have not hoped at all than to hope and let it die away. There's not much sadder than that. But in gathered worship and prayer, we can express even our hopelessness to God. Our own and the hopelessness of another. 
We get to intercede on behalf of one another. And then they continue on, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, they tell Jesus, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. God listens. This is a truth about the character of God that we get to participate in when we gather together. Because God listens, we can pray and sing sincerely, honestly, and without reserve. In the presence of God, there's space even for those of us who feel nothing but the absence of God. There's space in gathered worship for those who don't notice that God is here. God listens, and this ought to be extremely encouraging. Just thinking back over the prayers Michael led us in. If God doesn't listen, what a waste of time. What, how, how much more depressing could it be to list all these things wrong with the world if God was not indeed listening and acting on behalf of his people? That's good news. God listens, but God also speaks. The liturgy, which is what we call the shape of our service, this work of the people that we all participate in, the liturgy, it's this spacious uh, dialogue back and forth. God listens as we speak, but God also speaks. It's a spacious dialogue. It's an encounter with the living word of the God who is still speaking. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. God is a patient listener. But just as he hears us, He wants us to listen when he speaks. So when he hears these disciples speaking as if they have not heard, he interrupts their monologue with sharp grace. Foolish ones. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. God goes all the way back to Moses. God, Jesus goes back all the way to Moses here and he retells the Israelite story in such a way that his death and resurrection makes sense. He interprets it so that they see, wait a minute, what just happened this past weekend is a part of of that story. He gives deep meaning and coherence to the trauma of that past weekend. He reframes all of that suffering in light 
of God's purposes. The death of Jesus on the cross is no longer the end of hope for these travelers. It's now the very beginning of a true hope, of a hope worth hoping in. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is famous for creating these five stages of denial, or of grief. Denial being the first one. You've probably heard of these. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. Her classic book on grief and grieving was actually co-written. It wasn't just Kubler-Ross. It was a man named David Kessler who helped co-write it. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has been dead for some time, but David Kessler is still alive. And a couple years ago, in 2019, after his own personal grieving of the sudden death of his 21-year-old son, David Kessler writes about a newly added sixth stage of grief. He says, shouldn't end with acceptance. It ends with finding meaning, making sense of the trauma and the grief that has occurred. This is kind of what Jesus' teaching and interpretation of the scripture offer these two disciples on their journey. They're walking, leaving Jerusalem after seeing their hope dangling on a cross, dead, and then the body not even anywhere to be found. They're leaving, talking with each other. Jesus comes and through the scriptures gives meaning to all of that. So now not only do they accept, okay, Jesus has died. I guess we'll move on. We accept it. No, it's been given meaning, truth of what it means that Jesus suffers. Right? The meaning-filled hope of the resurrection shows how all of our trauma and suffering as well has a place in the story of God. None of it is meaningless. God listens and God speaks. And the word of God takes up all our words to God and places them within a fuller sentence, within a richer paragraph, a more cohesive narrative. The gospel becomes good news. And so when we listen as God speaks in our corporate worship, when we hear scripture read, when we hear the word preached, when we hear Bible teaching and things of this sort, it should serve to re-narrate our lives, to restory us into the gospel story, which gives meaning to all our suffering and trauma. This is why the church has always emphasized that people be taught the word. For here is found the way and wisdom of God. And that's what this scripture does today. It reorients us. It puts us into the gospel story. But in our story, these disciples still don't recognize who it is that's teaching them. It's good teaching. It gives meaning. It gives hope. It makes sense 
of the trauma, but it ends there at this point. But it doesn't, right? God listens, God speaks, and God feeds. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. Right? They're being good hosts. It's, in the ancient world, to travel at night without you know, hired help, a, a bodyguard essentially, was basically a death wish. It's like going to a more impoverished neighborhood and running with wads of cash in your hands, right? There was no police for there was There was no uh, sort of safety unless you had a hired person to protect you at night. So it would be very foolish to walk around at night. So they say, Jesus, uh, or they don't know it's Jesus yet, good teacher, come, come stay with us for the evening. Don't keep going. And he does. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and gave it to them. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Is the next line. This past weekend in Jerusalem, for these two disciples, was supposed to be filled with hope and excitement and feasting. Yet it became perhaps the most traumatic weekend of these disciples' lives. So they decide to go home. And on their journey of defeat, on their walk of despair, on their seven-mile hike of meaninglessness, God walks alongside these two disciples. Now, God is listening and speaking, and God is present not just on Sundays, but in every moment of our lives. He walks alongside us in our despair, in our sadness, in our anger, certainly in our joy and celebration as well. And yet, like these disciples, we don't realize we're walking with God. We don't recognize him on our own. And often we're content with that. We're content to simply walk and talk amongst ourselves as if the always present one was absent. Even though they didn't know who he was, after his teaching of the scriptures, they knew they wanted his company. They didn't want him traveling further on in the night, so they invite him to stay. And what's uh, pretty interesting here is they invite him to stay at their place. At least it's one of their places. So one of them should have been the host. One of them should have been the one blessing, breaking, distributing the bread. It's their house. But Jesus is the host because Jesus is always the host. Here at this table, it is always him who blesses, breaks, and gives of himself. 
God feeds us. This is a truth about who God is. Now, this is just a guess, but I'm guessing at least one of these disciples was either at the Last Supper or heard rumors of it from someone else. Because a couple chapters before this, in Luke 22, verse 19, it says of Jesus, these famous words, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks or blessed it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's in this blessing, breaking, giving that the eyes of the Emmaus travelers are opened. All of a sudden they recognize this is Jesus. This is the one who was teaching about himself. This is him. The real presence of Jesus is undeniably before them. And there's something about the blessing, the breaking, the giving that makes him undeniably here. It's at this table, in the sacrament of bread and cup, in the blessing, breaking, giving, that we come to recognize the tangible presence of Jesus. In communion, when we literally taste the sweetness of the juice and feel the wafer go down into our stomachs, perhaps begin to digest, you can feel it. This is as tangible as it gets. And just as these elements are very much present to us, they're really there. We really consume them. So too is Christ. And it's mystery. I don't know how it happens, but he's here. Are your eyes opened? Do you recognize him? It's at this table that we learn to recognize God's presence at every table. Just like the Emmaus disciples, he walks with us. God listens, God speaks, God feeds, and then God sends. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's even appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Did not our hearts burn within us? That might be one of my favorite verses of Scripture. It reminds me of Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah the prophet says, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. When we encounter God in word and table, word and sacrament, you cannot hold it in. 
The Holy Spirit, the fire of God, sets our hearts ablaze. It's like, I have a two-year-old, so I think of these silly things. It's like one of those uh, cars that you pull it back, and then it's meant to launch forward. If you pull it back and try and hold it there, long enough, the gears start sort of creaking and cracking. If you do that enough without releasing it, it'll break. It's meant to go. The energy has been built up. It needs to go. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? You don't want to break it. It has energy. You have energy that needs to get out. This is what the Spirit does when we encounter God. I have a friend named Ed who who pastored a church outside of Sacramento. And when he took over the church, uh, he knew not to make any immediate changes, but eventually he decided, okay, we got to spruce up the sanctuary. We got to paint. Okay. Now there's been church splits over things like picking a color to paint the sanctuary, but he says to, to the leadership team, I think we need to, to paint. And believe it or not, they all agree. They say, okay, let's do it. Go ahead. They all agreed. However, interjected one woman. Uh, Please don't paint over the water stain in the southwest corner of the sanctuary. You can paint, but don't don't paint over the water stain over there. What do you mean? said Ed. Uh, I have to paint everything or else it's going to look perhaps even worse than it already does. And part of the reason of wanting to paint is that there's water stains. Well, she explains how one Saturday morning, her uh, small group was together in the church when all of a sudden, it was raining outside, all of a sudden a water stain appears in the corner of the church. And wouldn't you know, it's in the shape of the face of Jesus. She said the presence of God came to them in that moment and to paint it would dishonor that moment and dishonor God. And Ed, wanting to honor the woman, but dig a little deeper, he said, wow, that's incredible. Isn't it amazing how God reveals himself to us? What happened after you and your small group saw this face in the water stain? The woman paused for a little bit and said, well, we went to brunch. A few days later, Ed painted the water stain. Because you do not see the face of God and just go to brunch. When we have an encounter with God, you cannot go away unchanged. This is why we gather together for worship to encounter the living God in a place where he promises to be present in word and table. When we recognize Jesus in our midst, when we realize he listens to us in our confession, in our requests, in our praise and professions and songs, and when we hear his voice in scripture and recognize his presence in communion, we are propelled out into the world to share and give of the life we just received. 
Not only are our eyes tuned to see God's redeeming presence in our everyday, ordinary lives and places, but our hearts are inflamed by the Spirit to share God's redeeming presence in those everyday, ordinary places. Every worship service ends with ascending, with a benediction, a blessing, and ascending. Go. Empowered, energized, propelled by the Holy Spirit, blessed and sent. Go. And so the Emmaus disciples, even in the same dark that they would not let Jesus continue to walk into, they leave the house and go back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night. This is foolish and dangerous, but they have to. They can't remain. They have to go back to Jerusalem and tell of what they just saw. Because Jesus is starting to show up everywhere. And so despair becomes delight as the truth about Jesus' resurrection begins to sink into these disciples. So why come to church? And how do we recognize the risen Christ among us? Together, we recognize the presence of Christ most tangibly, most completely, most coherently here in word and sacrament where he promises to be found so that we might be able to recognize his presence out there where he is also to be found. Seeing God at this table trains our eyes to see him at every table. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.